This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In order to live the Christian life, we need to know the faith, but we also need to know our culture, where we live the faith. It seems like a two-step process. First, learn the faith and then understand the world. Formally, learning the faith is a fairly straightforward matter. We need to hear God's Word preached and we need to read it with the church by learning to speak the language of the church as the church confesses the faith. Finding the sources to explain our culture, however, is not as straightforward. First, we have to define the culture, then we have to find some way to interpret it. This is one of the many things that our guest, Jim Gilmore, does. He's an economist by training from the Wharton School. He worked in the corporate world, and he's a co-founder with Joe Pine of Strategic Horizons, LLP. Jim specializes in provoking people, but in a good way. He provokes them to think in new and creative ways about the world around them, to interpret it more carefully, to dig below the surface in order to understand themselves, the market, and their product. He's co-author of two books and co-editor of a third. Most recently, Authenticity, What Consumers Really Want, and the earlier volume that he co-wrote, The Experience Economy, Work is Theater, and Every Business a Stage. He's on campus this week teaching a course in cultural apologetics, preparing seminary students to become skilled students of the culture, even as they become skilled interpreters and proclaimers of God's Word. Hi, Jim, and welcome to Office Hours. Good to be with you. I'm not entirely sure where to start. I'm a little (laughs) overwhelmed. I sat in class yesterday for three hours and took copious notes. I've been doing some reading, particularly in experience economy and trying to get a sense of what you're saying. And I think I'm beginning to get a picture, but I've struggled with where to go. So I'll let you help me and let you help shape where this goes. First, let's start with some basics. Why should pastors and churches pay attention to what's going on around them? And what tools do they need to become perceptive students of their culture? Well, it's important because a good preacher needs to not only know the text and expound it, but needs to know the congregation, the hearer of it, and how it's going to be received. And, you know, I joke with the students that there was a time when I went to a church where it seemed like every cultural reference in a sermon was either Pilgrim's Progress or Chariots of Fire, both of which were you know so dated. And you get a sense of you don't understand the world in which I live every day, in which I'm situated, in which I'm trying to live out the faith. So in order to help the hearer hear what's being preached, but also think it can can help illuminate the text as well in terms of how to be more playful, even in understanding what the Word says. Is there a way in which when pastors think about and learn from and pay attention to the culture, it is, in a sense, paying attention to their congregation, and therefore it's an act of charity? Oh, very much. I think that's very well put. We live in the current world. We sin in the current world. We struggle in the current world. And to understand that, I think, you know, love is movement towards another person. So if you're just sequestered in your study all week and do not allow yourself to read the daily newspaper, you do not watch the news and have no sense of what's going on, you're not moving to those you are to love through your pastoring. So to just understand the world they live in, not to put relevancy on the top shelf, but to be not only reformed, but also be relevant. There's nothing wrong with citing an older film or a classic piece of literature. You're not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. But if those are your only frames of reference and your only way of connecting with those with whom you're attempting to communicate, then you have a sort of limited palette then. Right. I mean, Pilgrim's Progress is significant because it's so enduring, but to interest those who perhaps currently have no interest in it, to find some current cultural object 
so that by analogy, say this is like this, again, might get people to be even more interested in some things they ought to be interested in. You're trained as an economist. So let's do a little econ, because this is sort of where you were starting yesterday, and then we'll go from there. What is wealth? In terms of financial wealth, because there's different kinds of wealth, would just be the accumulation of prior human effort. We structure the class almost as a play in three acts, understanding commerce, Monday, understanding culture, Tuesday, understanding congregations, Wednesday. And understanding commerce and understanding the commercial that's going on, talk about the nature of currency. A dollar is a unit of human effort that represents some effort I've put forward previously. So if you accumulate wealth, you're basically storing up your prior labor in the form of a unit to either invest or to spend. You know, when currency entered the scene, it became a unit of measure versus pure barter. Barter was literally the exchange of one person's output for another. But once currency enters the equation, then we simply assigned a unit to that work. So a dollar is a symbol of human effort. It is. And it's a way that we rationalize, sometimes economists say, uh, means of exchange, trading goods, services, and effort. It eases all of that. It makes transactions easier at the most rudimentary level. It's a lot easier to go into a store and hand currency to a clerk than to hand a chicken. Exactly. Because the clerk doesn't have to figure out, what am I going to do with this chicken? Where am I going to place this? All your livestock getting to make a trade for your buckets and your pails is not a convenient thing to do. So we have some idea now what wealth is and a little bit about what currency is. What is commerce? Commerce is the exchange of all that. It's the sort of the sum of all that. It's the, the activity that's going on, the interplay of output being exchanged, either commodities being traded or goods being sold or services being transacted. So it's the net sum of all of that. And one of the terms that comes up frequently in experience economy is commodify or commodification. And I think that's kind of what we're discussing here. Yeah, to commodify is to put something that was previously free or you did for yourself and then assigning a price to it. That would be to commodify something. And the whole foundational framework of my own work is how the economies have advanced to being purely agrarian, where the nature of commerce was basically the transacting of natural materials extracted from the earth, animal, vegetable, mineral, to commerce shifting to be predominantly that of physical things, goods made from those commodities, and then shifting to services, which is the buying and selling of activities performed on behalf of one another and now shifting to what we've labeled an experience economy, which is the buying and selling of time in either places or events. What you just did for us very quickly is a sketch of what you call the progression of economic value. So walk through it again, because the listener doesn't have the advantage of the charts that we had in class. I'll do it again and also illustrate it perhaps with a couple of classic examples that are very handy for people to get this. It's a way of looking at the history of economic progress. 200 years ago, people lived or worked on farms extracting commodities. That was the basis of commerce. That we automated that work and people left the farm increasingly went to the factory where they made physical things until most people worked in a factory and most economic output was physical things made from commodities. But then we automated that work and people left the factory to go into the service arena, the front counter or the office building. And so activities being performed on behalf of others became the basis of, of commerce. And now the basis of my work is we're shifting to an experience economy. We argue that experiences, spending money to spend time in places or events, going to a movie, going to Disneyland, that experiences are as distinct from services as services are from goods. So let me illustrate a classic example we use, which is the birthday industry. When I was a little boy, my mom would make my cake from scratch, meaning she would actually touch commodities, maybe 10 or 20 cents worth of stuff. In the 70s, she stopped making a cake from scratch. She would instead go to the grocery store, buy a cake mix, 
that's a physical good made at a factory, and spend maybe one or two dollars for that to make the cake. In the 80s, moms really stopped making a cake from the cake mix. They would instead call the grocery store, have a cake made on their behalf, including customized icing and names and pictures and artwork, and pay maybe 10 or 20 dollars for that cake making service. Then, of course, in the 90s, we saw the rise of not only outsourcing the making of the cake, but the entire birthday party to Chuck E. Cheese's, Jeepers, Discovery Zone, Bowling Alley, Laser Tag Center, Country Club, ad nauseum outlets where you're purchasing the experience of staging the birthday party. A party that mom used to self-stage in a previous era, they would do all the games themselves, but now you pay somebody else to stage that event. So there's a price tag affixed to that time, not just to a physical good or to a service activity. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So this explains why when I go to the mall, there are very few stores to which I, as a 51-year-old man, want to go (laughs) because they're not aimed at me. But there are a couple of places I like to go, one of which is the Apple Store. And I don't usually buy things when I go to the Apple Store, but I do like to go to the Apple Store. Why is that? Because of the experience design, there's also a, a non-commercial, non-paid-for experience. Interesting thing about Apple, and I use it also to illustrate this progression, is that while Apple is still selling goods and services, their retail environment definitely has a greater appreciation of experience design. In fact, the designers they hired were not from the traditional retail store design community. Rather, they went to designers of boutique hotels. That's why the place has a certain kind of feel to it. It's like building up to the bar in a, in a boutique hotel. Now, they are still predominantly still selling goods and services. To shift to experiences, what's interesting about Apple right now is for the first time in years, they have some little bumps in their financial performance and some negative critical review about version 5.0 of the phone. Apple is not yet charged explicitly for time. I tell a story in class about the hard drive failure of my iPod. I go in the store to get it replaced, and because I went over 12 months, I could, well, I'll give you a new one for 10% off. If they were charging an annual fee to be my music platform, then it would behoove them to have a physical good that wouldn't break. Quality would actually improve. It would be like the Netflix of a movie platform. And while Apple has an appreciation for experience design in their store, the actual economic offering, the output, is still largely charging for a good and a service. But there is kind of an Apple experience of the product. No doubt. The product itself is classic industrial design, okay? But even the iPod, to go back to really the first entry of renewing who they are today, that physical good is not of any value without the iTunes service of downloading individual music. And of course, ultimately, the goods, a prop, and the service is a stage for the music listening experience that one wants to derive from that. But until they charge explicitly for the time, a subscription, monthly, annually, and subsume the good and service in that experience, they're not yet explicitly charging for experience. This is the natural progression, though. At first, you layer on the new order of value to sell more goods and services. But eventually, what is most valued, that is the experience, will itself have a price tag attached to it. This is happening in subtle ways. I like to use food, for example. There's a difference between food service and a dining experience. Food service charges per entree. A dining experience charges a flat fee. Order anything off the menu. And finer dining establishments are doing just that, where here's my price for the season. Here's what I'll be serving. I like to talk about Grant Octons and a famous celebrity chef in Chicago now for almost $750 a person, selling literally tickets, specific seats at specific tables for specific seating times for three months. And then that season is over, right? So that's explicitly charging for time. That will eventually, I believe, migrate competitive pressures that you'll see just everyday restaurants adapt a similar model. Why is one thing 649 or thing 539 or 640? Why don't we make the whole thing 650? Pick any one of these three. It's a subtle 
but significant difference, even that pricing policy. Another example of a subtle but significant difference is a hotel. While you spend time there and you're paying for time, they still charge for the service, a collection of activities, and you know what I might call a room rate, and you know it because you have to check out by 11 o'clock. But a day rate, if you charge explicitly for time, you'd have a full 24 hours. So if you checked it at 3 o'clock, you'd have till 3 o'clock. Well, you'd have to do house cleaning differently if you charge for time versus charge for collection of activities. So some of these are subtle but significant differences. And we argue that over time, structurally, more and more of economic activity is attaching a price to time, not just to activities or to things or to stuff. Does this natural progression explain why when the bottom fell out of the economy in 2008, I drove by the mall and the parking lot was full of cars and I couldn't figure it out. And I turned to Mrs. Clark and I said, I'd been through lots of recessions including the Nixon-Ford-Carter recession, which was a long one and an ugly one. And I remember empty shelves and empty parking lots and closed buildings. And to be sure, there was some of that. But driving by a mall after the bottom has fallen out of the economy and we're officially in a recession and still the parking lot's full of cars, and I, I couldn't make sense of that. Well, many people enjoy time shopping in a mall, spending time there. And as there are more and more experiential elements, like the Apple Store layered on top, you enjoy spending some time in the Apple Store. You didn't actually buy anything while you're there. I used to pick on like Bookstone and Sharper Image before Sharper Image closed all their physical stores and went only online. I'd say go to a Sharper Image, just stand at the entrance and watch how many people go in, enjoy fiddling with various gadgets and things, and then leave never having paid because they're not being charged for that which they value, which is the time. So current economic condition that we're in, and we're still not out of, I largely ascribe, if you look at services, most of the growth of services in the last 30 years has been the growth of financial services. And most of the growth of financial services has been basically ever more desperate attempts to come up with financial instruments to prop up the world of goods, homes, <laughs> automobiles. And we still don't have a U.S. car company that offers a time sharing of cars. We have Zipcar and other people that are experimenting on the side, but there's no having access to a multiplicity of cars for a multiplicity of driving needs. No U.S. car manager even mass customizes a car today, even though my co-author, Joe Pine, wrote a book in 1993 about the subject. What would that mean, mass customization? Well, I've twice gone online and designed my own Mini Cooper, where I specified every single thing, and I waited several months for it to come. But when my car is coming off of lease, you know my relationship with you is ending. Let's design the next car. And I got precisely what I wanted. When I designed my Mini, actually, in both cases, I fully loaded the car with every option. And then I actually, when I customized, deselect. I, wa- I wanted I wanted manual mirrors and seat because it's a Mini. I wa- every time I got the car to be more exactly what I wanted, it simultaneously became cheaper. It was an interesting psychological thing. And I ordered the car. I waited for it because I got the car. I didn't have to go to the lot and pick one that was closest to what I wanted or have them get one from another dealership somewhere else because that's a car making service as opposed to a car off the lot. From build a bear to build a car. Exactly. Build-A-Bear is a wonderful analogy. I mean, Maxine Clark, founder of Build-A-Bear, tells an interesting story when she was first shopping her business plan for Build-A-Bear finance community, thought she was crazy. And she read our Harvard Business Review article, Welcome to the Experience Economy, and we affirmed what she was thinking. I tell folks that's not a retail store. That's a retail factory. We're so divorced from manufacturing, today people pay to go make their own teddy bear. Because only 9% of the population actually works in a factory anymore. Now, there's an experience charging for making your own bear. And people are raising their own chickens. 
We were discussing that yesterday in class. I mean, in fact, in Southern California, it became such a thing that city councils were sending out memos to people saying, hey, if you live in our city, you can't actually have chickens in your backyard. Well, it used to be everybody raised their own chickens or somebody in the neighborhood did. And you would go down and get some down. I hear tales of my dad, all the livestock they had in their backyard. But again, over time, less and less people do that for themselves. Just like most people, they don't make their own clothing themselves. They don't build their own homes themselves. They don't prepare their own meals themselves. We will increasingly rely upon others for that output. And there are these sort of retro niche movements back to doing it yourself. But the interesting thing is that they are just that, right? Niche movements. They're not mass. They're counter trends. Yeah. And my second book is on authenticity, which is people want real experiences. They want real service. They want real goods. So it's a new sensibility. As the world is increasingly, as commerce is increasingly relying upon others, something feels lost in that. But again, sometimes people pay for the experience of going back. They pay to go take a cooking. My, my mom would never have thought of paying to go to a cooking class. <laughs> That's what she learned from her mother. But in a world where people don't cook and haven't learned to cook, it now becomes a basis of commerce to pay for a class where you learn to cook and so forth and so on in multiple industries. You're called to holy living, but how to grow in holiness. Come to Westminster Seminary, California's Transforming Grace Conference, January 17 and 18, 2014, to discover what the Bible says about growing in holiness and the Christian life. Join Mike Horton, W. Robert Godfrey, and others to learn how the same grace that saves you also transforms you. Go to wscal.edu slash conference 2014. wscal.edu slash conference 2014. Space is limited register today. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the heart hearts and minds of God's people. And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. How is Las Vegas the embodiment of the experience economy, and how does that relate to authenticity, or is there any connection? I call it the epicenter versus the embodiment, because I think there's different genres of experience of which it demonstrates a certain type. And part of it's just fun that I do this, but in seriousness, it's because Las Vegas understands time is the currency of experiences. You have to get people to spend more time with you, and the money will follow. And they're also very keen in teaching a course about you know, cultural hermeneutics, how to read culture as a text. Las Vegas is very keen in observing changes in human behavior and then finding some way to appropriate those as new offerings. I give the example of class of a man cave. To me, a man cave is the most fascinating cultural text that emerged in the last 10 years. The NFL now realizes the man cave is their number one competition, not other sports leagues. Well, in Las Vegas, there's a man cave where you can pay $500 for three hours to basically get a keg of beer, 100 wings with 12 people. And when the three hours are over, 
the next 12 people come in. So they're finding a way to charge for the experience of watching a game in a designed man cave. And they did this by looking at what was happening in a craft way in people's everyday lives in their home and say, okay, how can we turn that into a business? Has there always been, or maybe it's just a matter of progression, but have there always been staged experiences or is that only something you get at the end of a process? No, it's just being charged for. I mean, in fact, Adam Smith denied services was an, were an economic offering. Adam Smith in Wealth of Nations services was just something you do to get goods to market. No, it would pay for a service. And he really derided the court jesters and musicians and they had no place for them in terms of recognizing their commerce. So it's always been around, but it's increasingly being charged for. Is it the case that you can really only have an experienced economy only after you've gone through the other stages? Because if you're spending most of your time going out to a field, planting, harvesting, and surviving, you really don't have the leisure to recreate. <laughs> right. And that's exactly where I was going. But as work becomes less physical, you're not plowing the field, you're not laying the bricks. I mean, there were no fitness clubs in the heights of the agrarian economy because your physical exertion <laughs> through the work. But as work becomes less physical, you now pay for membership at a fitness club. So that's very much the shift that's, again, all of life is an experience. Birthday parties of long established tradition. But now you, you pay for somebody else to do it. But way back to the Vegas point, the thought occurs to me. Recognize that in terms of Las Vegas being the epicenter, I like to say everything Las Vegas is being exported. Recognize that a man cave is really just a sports book. The multiple TV screens that have existed in a Las Vegas sports book for ages where all of the sporting events were on simultaneously. Now people have that in their home. And the betting culture, too, right, is has been exported. Fantasy teams. Right? You don't have to go to Las Vegas to place your wagering game. I'm in a fantasy football league, uh, mainly to keep in touch with my co-owner. It's a way for me to keep in touch with CB. We pay somebody in Wisconsin money every year, as do thousands of other leagues, for this guy to write code for our customized scoring system and so forth. The person is employed by maintaining a website to maintain our fantasy league. Which is really recreation. It is. I mean, it's like it's fantasy league, as if you were to own your own team. What you're really paying for is the bragging rights that I beat my buddy, that I know the game better than you, I can pick players better than you. It's sort of role-playing, if you will, that thing I used to do as a kid with my Stratomatic baseball and baseball cards, I would fantasize putting together a team, and now it's just become a, an adult activity. <laughs> you have said that theater is a model not a metaphor. It's a model for business. Is it a good model for churches? Wow. Now we're really getting somewhere. I think theater is a good model to understand what is happening. There is a drama unfolding. And in fact, it's interesting that I have the students read David Mamet's book, Three Uses of the Knife, and they have to do an insights and pick a certain passage and say, how does this apply to them? A lot of them are applying to how should they're preaching change? How should they? And it's always fascinating. And my mind, so your mind, my mind spins just reading how to answer the very question you've asked. How does this apply? And some students say, you know, I realize I shouldn't be entered. I'm not here to perform. I'm not an entertainer. But wait a second. It is entertaining if you understand entertainment to be passive absorption. When you stand up there and speak and someone is sitting listening, it is entertainment. If the entertainment is not done well, they won't listen. They will not off. So the question is what techniques should you apply? And I don't want to turn into a stage production and, and so forth, but to recognize that there are certain human principles of how certain stories are compelling. One student wrote a paper yesterday about The Hobbit, the book, was compelling the movie suffered. Well, my reaction was, well, don't do that to the greatest story ever told. You've got that text. So, no, make it entertaining for me. In fact, here's a good word Mamet writes in his book. Have people delight in the text that you're expounding. And delight is an entertainment word. It really is. To be delighted is to passively absorb something and be entertained by it. Enjoy, by the way. To enjoy him forever is an entertainment world. To be entertained and delight in what he is doing as you simply behold it.
So you're defining entertainment in a very specific, almost a technical way. I am. And so the listener needs to be aware that when you say entertain, you're really talking about a process of communication, and you're talking about a process that creates engagement with the text. Good word. Engagement's a great word. And you're not talking about passing the time or selling out. See, if you don't define entertainment, another thing that's the mammoth thing, if you just speak in broad generalities, people can attach any meaning they want to that generality. This is why we need to be precise. This is why the students here at Westminster learn their Greek, learn their Hebrew, right? What does this word mean? Education is passive absorption. And here's why it's useful. Because to engage people, an element of that is to be entertaining as it is to be educational as it is to provide a sense of escape, to transport people from one sense of reality to another. Good preaching should do that. There's a certain aesthetic, with an E, of just being there and beholding it. So that's what I call my 4E model, chapter two of the book. We're going to cover this today in class. You know, engagement's the right word. How is engaging? So in some ways, this is why I think a lot of conservative Christians latch on to, for example, postman's amusing ourselves to death. And they just throw all this away and go, really, what, do you want to be bored to death? Is that is that any better? So the question is, what kind of entertainment and how is it integrated? And by the way, if there is an enemy in the world, it's not entertainment. We are escaping ourselves to death of anything. It's the active participation in texting, in tweeting, in surfing. That's not entertainment, by the way. There's no such thing as interactive entertainment. Once you are actively involved in the Xbox, there's an entertainment element to it. But my kids much prefer to do Xbox something that they do watch a, a, a television show. Why? Because it is more engaging. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Wouldn't active engagement be a part of an experience economy? Yes. These are the four elements. It needs to be entertaining, fun and enjoyable. It needs to be educational. Learn something from doing something new. By the way, much entertainment masquerades as education. The classic classroom where you're passively absorbing the teachers conjugating the verb or doing the math problem on the board, it's not until the student does her or his actual work. That's the learning. It's the active participation is what makes it educational. Escapist value, to be transported. from there's, There are the times where you need a release. You need to get away. This is what Ray Oldenburg calls the third place in his book, The Great Good Place. Ever since work was decoupled from the home, industrial economy, it created a human need for a third place. I'm not ready to go home yet after work. This is why the tavern emerged across from the steel mill, right? People have a need to spend time. There's escapist value and there's aesthetic value, the value of hanging out and just being. And Starbucks has tapped into that. I need a place just to be, whether it's just to get 10 minute adult time out from my kids or whether it's I need to reflect on something or I want to read my Bible or I want to read the newspaper, whatever it might be. These are the elements that together, I argue, is what makes certain experiences more compelling than others. So churches and pastors need to be conscious of the fact that they are offering time to people, they're offering space to people, they're offering a message to people, a drama, a story. It's a true story. It's a historical story. It's a saving story, but it's a story. And we need to be consciously drawing people into that space, that time, that community, and that story. I'm quite comfortable with applying this 4E model to homiletics in terms of how a sermon should be crafted. And I'm less likely to want to pull down the video screens and let's get multi-century. Let's take what we already have. Because the story is sufficient, and the divinely appointed signs and seals, which are, in a sense, dramatic, right? A baptism and Lord's Supper, those are enactments of a sort. Now I would just argue, let's do them well. Yes. Yeah. In broadcasting, there's a term. It's a Yiddish term. It's called schlock. Yeah, it's a great word. And uh, one of the first things I learned in broadcasting many, many years ago is the difference between what's good 
and what's schlocky. Exactly. Not only do we want to avoid a false drama, a false gospel, I'm doing ma'am analogy, we also don't want a second-rate drama or a second-rate gospel. Well, the truth is there, but it's so hard to find because how schlocky the sermon was. And quite frankly, there is a lot of that. Really, in our reform circles, it may not be the false gospel, but it's often a second-rate gospel because there hasn't been sufficient consideration to the hearer. And we should not mistake being exegetical or expository or lengthy or rigorous with being clear. And I think that is part of my ambition in the course here is to, in whatever modest way I can, to equip seminarians with the tools to say, okay, so much what I'm studying here is to help me really understand and read the text. Now help me understand the culture into which that truth must be proclaimed. One last question. You're an advocate of commodification. And as I was reading your book, I, I was asking myself, is there a sense in which the church is a refuge from commodification? It's the one place where we're not commodified. Amen. That's correct. In fact, I'm not afraid of in any sphere of life shifting up this progression of value, including to transformations that you referred to earlier, which is the buying and selling of personal change. But the church should be the one place. In fact, I've been only once ever hissed by an audience, and it was an audience of pastors, where I basically talked about ridding all commercial activity from the church. No book tables, you know, but won't people take books and not read them if they're free? I go, well, maybe not today and maybe not tomorrow, but someday and soon they may pick it up. And if somebody's ready for Charles Hodge, give it to them from the tithes and the offering. If you have a retreat for a marriage retreat, it should be freely available to people. And to the extent to which you have all that commercial activity, you're charging for books and so forth, you're becoming more of a business. So I think you should strip all of that away because the church is the one place that has something to offer to which you can attach no price, no dollar to because it's the free gift. So I welcome all this commercial activity so that the contrast can be ever more stark between how people are constructing their lives and consuming every day through commerce, but realize there is something that all of that is a mere, at best, a shadow of something better that is offered here through the church. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.